Hi everyone and welcome to South Asia Sphere, our monthly roundup of news events and developing stories across South Asia. This episode was recorded the week of 12 December. I'm Raisa, Deputy Editor of Himal South Asian, and I'm joined by my colleagues Marlon, Shweta, and Saheli from Colombo, as well as Aimun from Karachi. Hi guys. Hey. Hi. Hi. Our main story this episode is on the recent Nepal elections. We'll also talk about protests around an Adani back seaport in Kerala and the wider influence of the Adani group in Sri Lanka, how China's COVID-0 policies have been received in Tibet, the reimposition of Sharia law in Afghanistan, and Pakistan's appointment of a new chief of army staff. Let's begin with what's happening in Nepal. Thanks, Raisa. Nepal held elections for its House of Representatives and seven provincial assemblies starting 20th November, with the Nepali Congress Party winning the most seats and incumbent Prime Minister Sher Bahadur Duma set to continue for a sixth term. However, the incumbent five-party ruling alliance was able to secure only 136 seats, too short of the 138 needed to secure a majority in parliament. Political observers said that despite this, it was likely the ruling alliance would be able to form a government by aligning with other parties. Nepal elects its legislators in two concurrent ways, a portion of them through direct voting for declared candidates and another portion through a system of proportional representation based on votes for particular parties. Under the PR system, the main opposition party, the Communist Party of Nepal United Marxist-Leninists, CPN-UML, received quite a lot of votes. Oh, that's right, Ayman. And a lot of analysts are saying that the monopoly of uh, the traditional political forces in the country has been challenged by the new political parties. Raisa, would you be able to put that into uh, perspective? Right, Marlon. So, something that has been quite widely discussed is that newly formed parties were able to gain quite a number of seats in this election. Um, now, this was interpreted by political analysts as a disruption to the status quo and uh, sort of a signal that voters were disenchanted with traditional parties, particularly around issues like corruption and inflation. The Rastriya Swatantra Party or the National Independent Party and the Janamat Party were some new entrants that seemed to have benefited from this, with the Rastriya Swatantra Party in particular gaining a good number of seats in the House of Representatives. Um, this is quite an impressive achievement given that um, I believe this party was formed within the last six months. Raisa, what were some of the key campaign issues these new parties were raising? Thanks, Saheli. So the Rashtriya Swatantra Party actually said that they were prioritizing the proper implementation of fundamental rights enshrined in the constitution. And they also spoke about uh, moving towards the provision of free health and education. Another issue they were talking about was clearly demarcating rights between the center and the provinces. But apart from that, the party is also headed by a prominent figure, a TV star, Rabi Lamichani, which probably contributed to its appeal. Now, the Janamat Party, which is led by a former secessionist, C.K. Raut, also prioritized free health and education. And he also spoke about attempting to stop corruption 
And he also raised compensation for poor farmers as an issue. And his party made significant gains in the Mades in the south of the country. Thanks, Raisa. And this election has been presented as pivotal and transformative for Nepal. So what might be the likely outcome of these results at a time when the country is facing various political and economic challenges? Well, so far, that's a big question. And so far, the consensus still seems to be, you know, it's too soon to say. I actually was listening to a post-mortem chaired by the South Asian Women in Media Nepal chapter. And um, some of the journalists and political commentators who were speaking there felt that the result, while it might be seen as a sign of progress, uh, it wasn't necessarily indicative, or rather it's too soon to say, of a transformation in Nepal's politics. There was some concern being expressed that political instability could deepen as the leading parties would have to form alliances to form a majority in parliament. And that could potentially be with parties who don't necessarily agree with each other, which might pose a challenge for the prime minister. But I think it's also important to note that while the new parties might not seem to have the numbers to make a significant difference immediately, their performance could signal the start of a shift in Nepali politics away from the established parties, including Congress, the Maoists, and CPN-UML. Now, that might mean more substantial change in future elections, though these parties also very much still have to prove themselves and make clear exactly what they stand for. Moving on to our next segment, Around South Asia in Finance. Over in Kerala, the four-month-long protest by fishermen and the Thiruvananthapuram Latin Catholic Church and activists against the Adani Group Seaport Project in Virinium was suspended temporarily on the 6th of December. The move came a week after the protests escalated with more than 80 protesters and police were injured and protesters held discussions with Kerala's chief minister where several demands were raised. The port, which is seen as potentially lucrative rival to ports in Dubai, Singapore, Sri Lanka, has the Adani Group covering a third of the project's cost under a 40-year agreement to build and operate the port, and the rest of the cost will be borne by the state and federal governments. Now, while construction began in 2015, building has been halted for more than three months after villagers raised concerns that the port's development would cause coastal erosion and undermine locals' livelihoods. And now this temporary truce was called as the state government refused to yield to the protesters' key demands that the construction work on the almost USD 900 million project be suspended until a report by experts on the port's impact on the region's fishery sector is released. That's right, Shweta. And on November 9th, Sri Lanka began construction of a $700 million terminal project, which was partly funded by the Adani Group. And this project was supposed to be completed by 2025. Now, Adani holds a 51% stake in the West Container Terminal at Colombo Port, and the Sri Lankan conglomerate, John Keels Holdings, has a 34% stake, and the rest is owned by the Sri Lanka Ports Authority. Now, this deal has been pretty controversial given that just last year, a deal for the East Coast Terminal at Colombo fell through 
with Sri Lanka saying that the Adani group had shown a lack of flexibility in ironing out the details of a tripartite memorandum of cooperation, which involved Japan and India. We should also note that powerful port unions pushed for this project to be built by the state, and this likely played a role in the earlier deal falling through. However, after Ranil Vikramasinghe assumed the presidency, after widespread protests linked to Sri Lanka's economic crisis, a new deal was inked for the West Container Terminal, and this is what's going ahead. Over in Tibet, the Chinese government's zero-COVID policy has caused uh, scarcity of essential medicines and led to other hardships. While um, Tibetans in exile have expressed solidarity with people in China who have been recently protesting against this policy, um, which also led to the government abruptly rolling it back. So in New Delhi, there were protests by um, Tibetan exiles. Uh, the demonstration was organized by uh, the Tibetan Youth Congress. Um, that supports the Dalai Lama. Um, now the question is how the Chinese government will handle an expected spike in COVID cases as the zero COVID policy is phased out, including in Tibet, where the local population has suffered decades of oppression. In Afghanistan, uh, the Taliban ordered judges to fully implement Sharia law punishments, including public executions, stonings, floggings and amputation of limbs. In November, two instances of public lashings were reported, one involving 19 people in Takar province and another involving 12 in the Loga region. The alleged crimes of those punished included theft and what officials described as violating social behavior rules and illegal relationships. On December 7th, authorities carried out the first public execution since the Taliban takeover last year. A man in Herat, convicted of murder, was shot three times by the father of the victim in a crowded sports stadium. Punishments like public lashings and executions were common during the Taliban's rule in the 1990s. In Pakistan, Prime Minister Shahbaz Sharif appointed General Asim Munir as the country's 17th Chief of Army Staff on 24th November. Munir, who replaced General Kamar Javed Vadwa, is presently expected to serve a three-year term. The appointment comes after a long stretch of political tensions, which included the ouster of the PTI government under Imran Khan earlier this year. Khan had reportedly tried to have his preferred candidate, General Fez Hamid, installed as new army chief instead. Bajwa leaves office as an unpopular figure, whose seven-year-long term was marred by Pakistan military's intervention into democratic processes, attempts to curb free press, and violence against vulnerable communities. The current government under Shahbaz Sharif claims that Munir has been appointed to the position because of his seniority in the military hierarchy. However, the long history of military interference in Pakistan's politics has created skepticism regarding the military's recent promises to stay out of politics in the coming years. It is obvious that the civil-military relationship once again hangs in the balance in the country. It remains to be seen how Munir's relationship with the political leadership in the country plays out in the coming years. This is something we are exploring in an upcoming piece for Himal Briefs by Salman Rafi Sheikh, so watch out for it. And now for our next segment, Bookmark, our cultural segment where we discuss what we are watching and reading from around the region. So, my recommendation this month is a couple of documentaries shot by the digital news portal East Mojo 
on the Mon Massacre in 2021. December 4th marks one year since Indian security forces killed over a dozen civilians in Oting village in the Mon district of Nagaland. Now, the security forces characterized the initial killings of six men as a case of mistaken identity. More people were killed, including a soldier, in the violent unrest that followed. The Mon Massacre led to renewed calls for the repeal of the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, which grants security forces impunity across large parts of India's northeast. It's very right, it's very justifiable. Graves yards are also very peaceful, but that is not what we are looking for. It is our right to demand for the repeal of Aspa. This year, across Manipur and Nagaland, the Nagal community gathered to observe a black day and lit candles in remembrance. One year on from the massacre, parts of Assam, Manipur and Nagaland are no longer categorized as disturbed areas under AFSPA, meaning that the Act no longer applies there. But the impact of AFSPA lingers in the northeast. The documentary's bias module include interviews with eyewitnesses and survivors and highlight the brutalities perpetrated under the AFSPA over many years. You can find it on the East Mojo website. The two documentaries are called One Massacre Through the Eyes of Oting and One Year of Oting. Does anybody else have any recommendations? Yes. So my recommendation for this month is a climate horror short film called Moshari, directed by Nuhash Humayun. And it's also Bangladesh's first Oscar qualified film. And it's set entirely in Bangladesh. Without kind of giving away too much. Um, the film is basically about two sisters surviving a post-apocalyptic world affected by climate change, where they're basically terrorized by these vampiric mosquitoes. And the only way to survive them is by sheltering inside Moshari, which is a mosquito net. I think that's really unique and brilliant conceptually because Moshari is a familiar kind of household object around South Asia. And by kind of taking this culturally specific element and combining it with the very real and current threat of climate change, it makes for like some really great visual storytelling. So that was a really interesting film. Have any of you guys watched it? Oh, I I watched it. I really liked it too. I mean, uh, it reminded me of like uh, Get Out. Um, yeah. And then I see that you know Jordan Peele's is actually he, he was he, he's. He's one of the executive producers. I just found out later. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm all for this, like you know, horror renaissance, you know, which tells like compelling stories and tackles social and political issues. So, but at first I thought it was like uh, something to do with dengue, maybe just like uh, been, been what's what's been happening <laughs> in Sri Lanka and basically in South Asia in general. But then, uh, so this is a spoiler. The finger comes through, <laughs> that I realized. <laughs> It's something else altogether. Yeah. And um, I mean, even the cinematography is like great. I, I mean, except like at the beginning, I think there was like, like these expansive shots of the landscape, but then it kind of, uh, you know, goes into this kind of, uh, it becomes very claustrophobic and, uh, you know, like the narrow corridors, the, the closet, 
Mm. And and of course the the moshari, like you said, you know, it's a mosquito net which is something very 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 familiar to us. Uh, I hate them, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've never been able to use one, and I agree with the the sister. You know, it's it feels really you know suffocating, suffocating. Yeah. Don't you know? It feels like you know you can't breathe, and uh, and I think it also ties well. I mean, the whole claustrophobia it ties well with what uh, the younger sister kept repeating. You know, this is my space. I think this was in the closet. This is my space. Give me my space. And um, so I think that that kind of went, you know, took the film into like a complete different direction, like you know, gender-based violence and just like gender norms mm. and yeah. So yeah, if, I I really liked the the film. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was also thinking that it could even relate um, partly to climate change, yes, and they made that reference when they were, you know, there was that announcement going on in the beginning. Yeah. But also, even with regards to the pandemic, because, you know, it is about being you know your world coming to a standstill by forces beyond your control and about like viruses evolving so i was thinking of that as well when i was like watching the movie and even the content of that announcement i think mm. where it said you know even the west uh, was not able to uh, persist against these forces but uh, yeah thanks to the mushari and like using these local kind of solutions we were able to survive which i thought was interesting yeah if you guys uh, think this sounds interesting definitely do check it out because it is available online and it's also only 20 minutes long but there's so much kind of packed into it so yeah that's our recommendation for this month and on that note that's it for this edition of south asia sphere follow us on apple podcasts spotify youtube soundcloud and our social media channels to make sure you don't miss the next episode and do head to our website, himalnight.com, to see more of Himal's work. You can support our work by becoming a member of Himal as well. And check out our membership plan, himalnight.com slash membership. Thanks, everyone. Bye. 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 Bye.